realized early on that I really enjoyed working with plants and soil and did a degree at UC Davis in California and got to witness firsthand as an undergraduate some of the amazing research that was going on at, at Davis, which is a, a land-grant institution really focused on providing farmers with research and extension. One of the typical ways a, a farmer will well, transition would be to mow that cover crop and then turn the cover crop, plow that cover crop into the soil. And then the cover crop would be decomposed by the organisms in the soil, making the nutrients available. Increased stress is linked with teeth grinding and clenching, which causes poor sleep, jaw pain, and headaches. But did you know that one in every four adults grind or clench their teeth while they're sleeping? A Remy Custom Night Guard can protect your teeth from grinding and clenching while saving you hundreds of dollars compared to getting one at the dental office. Use code GUARD20 for 20% off your order. Visit shopremy.com now. S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I.com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Surviving Hard Times Podcast. I have uh, Sean Smuckler, PhD. He's an associate professor, also an associate dean of graduate and postdoctoral studies. He's the chair of agriculture and environmental faculty of land and food systems. So quite a number of designations. And uh, we're going to talk about his research today into soil health and sustainable agriculture. So Sean, thank you for coming. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. If you would uh, just give me a little bit about your background, and then I want to ask you about the uh, research that you're doing right now. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, where to start? I guess uh, I, I grew, grew up working uh, with my my mother who owned a landscaping business and realized early on that I really enjoyed working with plants and soil and did a degree at UC Davis in California and got to witness firsthand as an undergraduate some of the amazing research that was going on at, at Davis, which is a, a land-grant institution really focused on providing farmers with research and extension. And yeah, the, the labs that I worked in as undergrad were really focused on, on soil and Afterwards, I did a degree at the University of Washington, focused specifically on forest soils, a master's degree, and then went back to Davis for a degree in a PhD in ecology, and again, focused on soils. And since then, my, my, my research has really been focused on managing agriculture to, to enhance soils for, for maintaining productivity for future generations. So what are some of the challenges today with soil? How is it being uh, depleted or, you know, is it becoming like literally completely unusable or is it that it's becoming dependent on like exogenous fertilizers or what's happening with it? Well, I mean, it's not, it's not that we're, we're seeing a, a monolithic uh, story across the, the globe. There are certainly places where people are managing their soil better than others. There's certainly some some shining stars out there of people who are managing soil for to make it better than the soil that they they started with. 
but for sure, the trend seems to be that we're, we're not treating our soil as good as we should. And you mentioned uh, exogenous inputs such as fertilizers. That's often pointed out as the, one of the primary uh, culprits there because farmers are, they have access to nutrients that are readily available and quickly uh, and effectively feed the crops that they, they are growing, but potentially the, the cost of, of their, their soil's health. And um, that's one thing that, that really needs to change is a focus on crop productivity to soil productivity. And so what does that mean? Again, what, what can we do to improve the soil instead of just using it and abusing it the way we have? I mean, there, there are some very tried and true methods out there that can help rehabilitate or maintain a healthy soil. So some of these methods have, have been in place since the, the beginning of agriculture or, or even before. Some of these are, are uh, pre-agricultural techniques. And basically the, the principles are to, to try to limit the amount of disturbance that we're causing to the soil. What we want is a, a soil that is basically a, a healthy ecosystem. There are organisms in the soil that are driving interactions and nutrient cycling that are critical to, to maintaining the functioning of that soil. And when we disturb the soil, we disturb those communities and oftentimes to, to the detriment of the, the function. Other techniques would be to, to really protect the soil as much as possible. So make sure that the soil isn't blown away by, by wind or isn't washed away by water. Another important one would be to make sure that we're, we're feeding the soil, making sure that the, the organisms that are in the soil are getting the, the, the sustenance that they need to, to function effectively. And oftentimes that's, that's done by having a, a diversity of plants and making sure that those plants are able to, to get their, their roots down deep to where the, the organisms need them. The, the strategies that are being employed to, to maintain soil health. Well, it sounds like, yeah, those are the things that need to be done, but what are the strategies? So how do you make sure that, you know, water infiltrates instead of runs off? How do you make sure that, that all these things are accomplished? Yeah, so the, uh, one of the uh, the techniques that is often deployed by farmers is to to use what's called a, a cover crop. Actually, to start just to make sure that the soil is covered throughout the year. So during a production season, the farmer will gr grow a cash crop. And when the farmer is not growing a cash crop during the non-production season, say during a, a winter here in, in BC, it's critical that the soil is, is still covered. So they will grow what's called cover crop. This is a, a crop that is, is not necessarily going to have direct economic returns, but is specifically there to protect the soil during the winter months. But it also can ensure that some of the nutrients that were in the soil at the end of the production season are not lost to the environment. So that if you're planting a, a cover crop, that cover crop is soaking up any of the, the nutrients that are left over in the, in the field and storing them until they're needed in the subsequent production season. It's also a technique to plant nitrogen fixing cover crops. So legumes, beans. Are, they have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria, so they can actually 
take nitrogen directly out of the atmosphere and put it into the ground and that nitrogen can be utilized by the cover crop and then in the spring when the the farmer is preparing their field for, for planting they're turning that cover crop back into the ground and making it so that the those nutrients are available for the the cash crop and you know so that has t- a number of of benefits and one of them is to reduce the reliance on the the outside inputs of, fer- of fertilizer Remy night guards are designed for comfort Remy sends you an at-home impression kit and has a team of in-house dental professionals to make you custom comfortable night guards that you'll forget you're wearing all for 80% less than the cost at the dental office visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. Remember, that's S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I dot com. If you have nitrogen fixers, they grow, what, during the winter? And then do you plow them in? Or how does it work where they, they leave nitrogen in the soil, but also removing the cover crop, I guess, when the time comes? Well, so, yeah, one of the, the challenges is to get that nitrogen mobilized so that the, the cash crop can utilize it during the summer. So if you're transitioning from a cover crop to a production crop, you need to think carefully. Farmers need to think carefully about how to do that. So one of, one of the typical ways a, a farmer will, will transition would be to uh, mow that cover crop and then turn the cover crop, plow that cover crop into the soil. And then the, the cover crop would be decomposed by the organisms in the soil, making the nutrients available. But if you recall, recall one of the, uh, the principles of, of strategies for, for maintaining soil health was to reduce disturbance, you would want to try to minimize the amount of disturbance that you, you are inflicting during that transition period. So one of the research projects that my lab is working on is alternatives to that transition using traditional tillage techniques trying to minimize the disturbance as we go into the cash crop. Well, and no-till farms, what do they do when they have a cover crop in the off-season? So what do they do to prepare for the next season? Yeah, no-till would be a really good example of another strategy to, to reduce the, the disturbance. Some farmers, if they're conventional farmers, would have the option to use herbicide to transition. You could kill the, the cover crop with herbicide, to transition to the next crop without actually using any tillage. Other no-till methods could be to actually just mow and then plant into the cover crop without actually disturbing the soil. There are specialized pieces of equipment now that can enable farmers to cut through the what we call is a, a mulch that's left on, on the, the soil surface and plant through that mulch. The experiment that we just ran with vegetable production system would be to use plastic tarps that would help to to kill and and to enhance the decomposition of the the cover crop and enable the farmer to to plant without uh, tilling the soil. Does the winter kill the cover crops or that's not enough? Uh, in some parts of the world, the winter can definitely kill the cover crop. In BC, where we're at, uh, the, the winter here in Vancouver, the winter is fairly mild, so we can get a cover crop that can survive the winter. But yeah, there are definitely some parts of the world where cover crops are winter killed, and that transition becomes a little bit easier. 
Um, is there a way to keep cover crops while you're growing during the growing season? I mean, you know, weeds come, but uh, I guess the definition of a weed is, you know, the plant's going to take resources from your crop, but they're ones you can leave in there that are complementary that would maybe keep the soil temperature right or keep it insulated, but allow the main crop to grow. Yeah, so there's there's certainly been some evidence that farmers can intercrop with with certain species that would enhance the cash crop, basically providing all the benefits of a, a cover crop uh, to the field during the production season. Alternatively, it's been a traditional practice in, in, in many parts of the world to rotate so that your field is covered during the summertime, during the production season with a cover crop. So you're, you're specifically not growing a cash crop, you're growing nutrients for the next year's cover crop, or sorry, the next year's cash crop. And that system works really well if, if land isn't a scarce resource. So where, where we are, where farmers struggle to, to have enough land to stay in production because real estate prices are so high, it's really challenging to have enough land to, to do that type of rotation. Um, but certainly that is a, a well-documented strategy that, that works. Well, on larger farms, could there be areas set aside that are cover crop at the same time? You know, let's say last year they grew wheat on it. This year now it's cover crop. And then another field last year had cover crop. Now it's wheat. Can they yeah. rotate around their farm in different parcels to get it done? Yeah, that- that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, a rotation that would include a cover crop or what, what we would call as a, a green manure crop. So it's a crop that you're specifically growing to produce nitrogen for, for the next cash crop. So yeah, diversifying through a rotation is a, is a really effective tool. Well, for smaller farms, what if you know, there was a buddy system? This year I'm growing XYZ and you're growing ABC and then we're going to literally... You know, next year I'm going to do uh, cover crop. You're going to do that. And then we'll, I mean, could you switch dirt or is that absurd? Like, you know, for smaller farms, like literally swapping, you know, the top eight inches of topsoil, would that be even possible? Or is that, is that crazy? Uh, you mean actually move the soil? Yeah. If I had a buddy and like uh, I said, we agreed to a, a complimentary schedule where I grow, you know, ABC one year, he grows XYZ and then we switch it. Yeah. Or we yeah. swap soil, which might be crazy. But. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and we'll be able to solicit donations to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think the swapping soil would be great for soil health. That might be detrimental, but I, I think the idea of coordinating the land that you have in production with your neighbors is a great one. Certainly one of the issues that all farmers face is 
the issue of labor and trying to make sure that they've got the labor requirements for the crops that they're growing. So yeah, if there was a way that they could coordinate so that some of their land is in green manures uh, during the production season, yeah, that could, seems like it could work. You know, there's some details there that would need to be ironed out. Okay, well, uh, what other strategies can improve soil health? Like, I guess backing up, I should have asked you in the beginning, what are the metrics of soil health to you or that are commonly um, you know, agreed upon? Yeah, it's an interesting question because the, the last part is sort of the, the critical part that you know, what metrics are commonly agreed upon. Well, there, there isn't a great consensus out there of what indicators should be used for soil health. There's been some recent efforts to really sort of tackle that one to make sure that we are all working from the same playbook when we're determining what, what is a healthy soil. But yeah, the indicators can, can range from physical, biological, or uh, chemical. And really, given the complexity of the soil ecosystem, it's, it's probably important to have some indicators from each of those categories to make sure that you've got some indication of the, the, the biological health, such as the, the amount of organisms that, that are in your soil or the diversity of those organisms which are really the, the drivers of nutrient cycling and determine the, the structure of the, the soil. So then physical, the physical components might be how, how dense your soil is or how compacted it is. That's, that's a, a, a typical indicator. Uh, chemical indicators would be you know, how much nitrogen or, or carbon are in your, is in your soil. That really gives you a sense of the, the, or, or the organic matter. The organic matter is is often one that that's suggested as sort of the the monolithic indicator, the one that can, if you had to pick one, you would you would point to organic matter because it's connected to so many of the other indicators, whether they're biological, physical, or chemical. Well, why not look at biological indicators because that's what you know enables the nitrogen cycle and the bacteria. I mean, why not look at like earthworms per you know per cubic foot? trains per cubic Yeah, so I mean that those are great indicators. We that's certainly something that we measure when we go out and do assessments. The thing that is challenging is to make the indicators something that farmers can quickly and easily do at a scale that's relevant to their production. So, you know, it takes us about a half an hour to to dig a pit sort through the earthworms, count them up, enter the data. That's for one site. If For one pit, if we were to try to do that for 10,000 acre farm, you know, that would be months of work. So being able to, to have an indicator or a suite of indicators that the farmers can go out and sample across the area that they're working in and do that repeatedly over time is really important. So it's it's about it's not just about how how good the indicator is in in showing us that the soil is healthy. It's making sure that the farmers can actually go out and do it. Well, are there any non-invasive ways? Like maybe this is ridiculous, but could you use ground penetrating radar? Would that show you anything? If you shine certain light on the soil surface, would that tell you anything? Are there again any non-invasive ways to image? 
so you can do multiple sites in a farm and not even disturb anything, but get an idea of what's going on. Oh yeah, for sure. And that's, that's part of the research that we're working on right now. So yeah, one of the, the less invasive ways of assessing a soil would be to, to go out and, and just take a, a, a core and select points across a farm field and then take them back to the lab, analyze them using various laboratory techniques that, that can be quite expensive. But what we're working on is trying to develop a relationship between some of those traditional laboratory techniques and uh, a spectral signature from the surface of the soil. So we take that, that sample of soil and we run it with the, the traditional expensive laboratory technique. And we also run it using a mid-infrared spectrometer. And we get a, a sense of what the spectral indicators are of that, of that soil. And we can actually develop a relationship, a mathematical relationship between what we analyzed in the, the lab and what we an, analyzed with the spectra. And what is the potential? Well, one outcome of that is that we're able to, to process way more soil for the same amount of price and effort than we did before. So we, uh, using this spectral approach, it's about 10% of the, the cost of the traditional approach to analyzing soil. And we're actually finding that the spectral approach can be used for many different indicators at the same time. So you know, the, that cost that I just quoted you actually might go down as we get better at associating or building these mathematical relationships between the spectra and other indicators. And you know, it'd probably be best is if you mount a device that can do some spectral analysis to the, the harvesting equipment itself, then yes. it's not wasting any time as it runs over the fields and looks and looks and looks and looks and maps out, you know, what it sees over your fields. That's exactly what the holy grail is to be able to have mid-infrared spectrometer being integrated into the farm field equipment and being dragged behind, uh, being able to relay that to the onboard GPS and to determine how much fertilizer needs to be applied to specific parts of the field based on the nutrient content that's being supplied by that spectral sensor. We're still a little ways out from having that technology in place. You know, there, there are a number of labs that are working on that. We're getting better at that. One of the major barriers is that the spectral response is very dependent on soil moisture. So one of the things that we do is when we bring it back to the lab, we dry down the soil so that it's a, a consistent zero or close to zero moisture. The soil looks very different when it's wet. And so getting it so that those instruments out in the field can deal with the, the wet soil is, is an active area of intensive research right now. The what other about, uh, spectral analysis of stems and, and things like that, or the produce, the vegetable or the fruit, you know, or the grain, um, can it, can you do a spectral analysis in the plants themselves right before yeah. harvest or at harvest? Yeah. So that's another area that we've been working in as using remote sensing. So we've, we've used drones and satellite imagery, uh, drones to capture satellite imagery, sorry, drones to capture remote sensed imagery and satellites to capture remote sense imagery. And uh, from that imagery, we're able to, to build relationships to either healthy plants or healthy soil 
to be able to map uh, differences across the landscape or uh, uh, in the case of the drone imagery across a field. So, you know, the healthy plants are greener than the unhealthy plants. And so we can tell where the soil is either nutrient poor or otherwise limiting the, the productivity of the plant. And there's a number of researchers right now who are working on trying to do that at a, a, a much higher resolution to enable in-field management of plants, whether it's for nutrients or for pest management. So yeah, that's a, it's, it's a very exciting and interesting area. Yeah, I would think, you know, have you reviewed footage? I'm sure you have, you know, like rastering over a whole field. You know, how heterogeneous is it? Let's say the greenness or the apparent nutrient levels. If you apply different light filters, UV, infrared, you know, visible, and then you raster over a field, you know, how much variation is there? What's noticed? Yeah, I mean, what what from the, the human eye looks like a homogeneous field, just a, you know, a solid field of corn can be very very heterogeneous when you look at it through the eyes of a sensor that has something like, you know, uh, hundreds of bands of, 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 of wavelengths. So there, there are people now using hyperspectral imagery to really tease out some of that, that heterogeneity across the field. And we know that, that soils are incredibly different from, you know, in just a, a, a few meters distance and so yeah we're able to to with these technologies really tease out some of that that really complex spatial differences okay what other methods are being contemplated to uh, evaluate you know maybe non-invasively fields i mean i think or is that plenty if it is it's okay i, I mean i th- i think all of those methods that i just mentioned all have you know different nuances to the the questions that they're trying to address yeah so you know we're, we're looking at different ways of of using uh, imagery from the the back of a tractor to a drone to a satellite to be able to to manage the agricultural system in a more efficient way, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of details that need to get worked out to make that effective. Hmm. Okay. Other metrics for soil health that you're looking at, you know, that maybe a totally different approach is being used. Um, I mean, I, I I don't think my my lab is 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 working on something that unique in any way. I think we're we're trying to build build our, our, our overall understanding of, of these types of, of technologies in different systems that would, that would otherwise not be used. So, you know, we're working in the lower Fraser Valley of British Columbia, where we have some very intensive production systems that I would say are, are, are different than other places in the world and that we've got vegetables and blueberries and dairy and, dense forest all sort of intermixed throughout a, a very productive river valley. I think it's, yeah, our, our, our techniques aren't, aren't necessarily different than what, what folks in other parts of the world are, are developing. Okay. Well, what, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? Yeah, we have a, a website, the Sustainable Agricultural Landscapes Lab. Uh, if you Google that the saw lab, it should it should come up. We yeah, we've got 
most of our our project re- results up there and hopefully in a, in a way that's digestible to the the general public and and farmers who hopefully this is useful for okay well very good sean thank you for coming on the podcast i appreciate it yeah thanks uh thanks for your time before you go make sure to protect your smile from teeth grinding and clenching with a remy custom night guard visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20 percent off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.